Hi, I'm Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of scrambling to keep up with the demands of your own life, you're also caring for someone else in your life? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we hear from people just like you who share caregiving stories from the field, how you cope, what you've learned, and how care has changed your life. We also hear from professionals in the field of aging and people using media to address major health issues and challenge widespread assumptions about what it means to get older. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. A major study conducted in 2010 by the National Alliance for Caregiving found that of the more than 10 million Americans who care for America's veterans, 7 million are veterans themselves, and a growing number of them are parents. One of them is today's guest, whose life and that of her son and her family changed dramatically after the 9-11 attacks. We're joined by Army veteran Rosie Babin, who cares for her son, retired Army Corporal Alan Doc Babin, who was severely wounded in Iraq in 2003 while serving as a paratrooper medic with the Army's elite 82nd Airborne Division. Rosie joins us from Round Rock, Texas, to share her family's story and to tell us about Help Our Wounded, an organization she founded to help America's military families. Rosie Babin, I am so happy to have you on the show. Welcome to the AgeWise Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Let's put this in context for our listeners. Tell us a little bit about your background. I know that you and your husband, Alan, were high school sweethearts and both in the Army. Did you both grow up in Texas? I grew up in Texas, born and raised Texan, uh-huh. but my husband was an Air Force dependent, so he was an Air Force brat. Oh, okay. His dad ended up being stationed on his last assignment at Laughlin Air Force Base, which is attached to Del Rio, Texas. Okay. So he came there as a junior in high school. And tell us about your separate experiences in the military. You were serving during peacetime as opposed to your son. So tell us about your experience in the military. Correct. So we went in right after high school. You know, we graduated from high school, got married, and went out into the big wide world. (laughs) I attended basic training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and, you know, frankly loved it. I had been a runner for years, uh, had been in band, so marching was not new to me, and was pretty physically fit at all 93 pounds of me, five foot one. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And yes, I was privileged to be in the first non-WAC, which was a Women's Army Corps Mm -hmm. platoon at Fort Jackson. We were the first platoon of soldiers. Uh So we were uh, training side by side with the men. So that was very interesting. A whole new world, um, you know, to be force marching with five foot ten, six foot guys that would fall out of formation. (laughs) Like I said, boy, being a runner helped a lot during basic training. And so from there, I went to administrative school. I was a 71 Lima. I was able to stay at Fort Jackson. Uh, My husband also attended uh, basic training at Fort Jackson, and then he went on to Fort Rucker, Alabama for helicopter crew chief school. So um, I was there, you know, through the beginning of December of 1978, and then was assigned to Germany. at the commander's office for 8th ID, the uh, largest mechanized unit in Europe. And suddenly my husband got orders to go to Korea. And we were under what they call the buddy system, Mm -hmm. which, you know, they're supposed to station you within 50 miles of each other. Mm -hmm. And I was blessed that because I worked across the hall from the commander of 8th ID to be able to, you know... (laughs) knock on his door and uh, (laughs) tell him about what was going on. And the general picked up the phone to Fort Rucker, Alabama, and flagged my husband's orders. And he was on the next flight out to Germany, having no idea (laughs) what had happened. And so I learned as an 18-year-old to... Never take no for an answer. And boy, let me tell you, has it served me well I'm as a sh- yes. caregiver for <laughs> I'm sure it has. What drew you to the military to begin with? 
You know, in all honesty, because I had no idea what I was going to do when my husband was active duty. He had gone into the delayed entry program the summer before his senior year, and so we knew he was going off Mm -hmm. into the Army in August after we graduated from high school, and I thought, well, what am I going to do, you know, for a job? And nobody told me that there were civilian jobs. We had never really been exposed to the military other than dating him and meeting Mm -hmm. his father, but we had no idea of, I just thought, you know, once I left with him, then what was I going to do beyond a base? And so... Frankly, it was just kind of naivete, and again, I was blessed that I was in great physical shape Mm -hmm. and had been an avid reader my whole life, but I arrived not understanding what rank was or, you know, what the structure of the military was, Mm -hmm. and frankly, you know, my faith tells me that God was preparing me for my current Hmm. job, and I've been Hmm. in basic training for this my entire life. Yeah. As I understand it, you were preparing to become empty nesters, you and your husband, but things changed. And I'd love for you to share with the listeners what your dreams were for retirement and what happened. Absolutely. You know, Ellen had already moved out of the house and our your daughter was... now. You're talking about Doc. son, Alan. Uh-huh. Doc. Right, I'll Doc. refer to him as Doc because that'll make it easier. But our daughter was the freshman in school and so... Uh, was getting ready, you know, for driving. We were doing driver training. And again, you know, kind of as an avid reader and with a lot of friends that uh, were older than we were and were starting to retire, I wanted to make sure that, you know, we had a successful transition into being empty nesters. My husband is a you know veteran police officer. He's been a police officer for over 30 years. And mm-hmm. so, You know, a lot of shift work, and so a lot of focus on having a strong, healthy marriage. And so we had started taking dance lessons, and the wonderful thing about that was that every Wednesday night, we focused on nothing but each other Mm -hmm. and having to look into each other's eyes while we're learning to dance and making sure that that time didn't get away from us Mm -hmm. and that focus because boy you know the kids were so busy our daughter was a cross-country runner softball player student council wow and so you know you get so involved and i was very active in our austin downtown lions club and church and Mm -hmm. so i resigned from quite a few committees when alan was wounded because we You know, we were doers, and so we had to carve out that time for each other so that it didn't get away from us between the kids and shift work. Mm -hmm. And I know that your son, Doc, enlisted in the Army after 9-11. What was your reaction to his enlistment? It was bittersweet. You know, as veterans, and of course, like you said, during peacetime, ours was a you know, very glorified military experience, pretty much a three and a half year honeymoon in Europe. And um, so that's what Alan grew up hearing. And yet, when we watched what happened on 9-11, and, you know, he said, I want to do something where I can help. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to join the Army. And I want to be a medic with the 82nd Airborne Division. And he would not sign on the dotted line until they guaranteed him that if he passed all the tests. Oh, wow. And we were so proud of him. And I hugged him and wanted to wring his chicken neck at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, sure. As a medic, he'd be on the front lines. As a paratrooper, he'd get dropped beyond the front lines. And, you know, so, again, pride mixed with tremendous concern. Mm-hmm. But how could we not support what his heart and spirit told him to do? And while he was employed and had, you know, two jobs at the time, he really had not decided what he wanted to do other than he wanted to be involved with either personal training or EMT work. I mean, he just had not quite found his direction and this happened and he said to us, you know, there were people in those towers that were doing all the right things, had careers, had families, and they lost it all for nothing. And I want to be able to help, to Mm. help prevent this, to be where I can actually hands-on help other people. 
so noble and admirable. We'll talk about your son, Doc's deployments. I know he was deployed to Kuwait, and then he was deployed to Iraq very early in the war, in March of 2003. If you don't mind telling us what happened, what you were told, and your reaction. Absolutely. So Alan left for Kuwait uh, the middle of February of uh, 2003, and they were there for six weeks training on an island, uh, Falaka Island, on, you know, door-to-door training, Mm -hmm. which is what they were going to have to do Mm once they went into Iraq. And we got a letter, an email from uh, his commanders at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, on March 29th, letting us know that the 82nd Airborne was all engaged in operations and they were you know heading in and on the morning of march 31st about 6 30 in the morning i was getting ready for work and my husband and daughter were actually just heading downstairs when the phone rang to you know he was taking her to cross country mm-hmm. practice and uh, all they heard was my half of the conversation um i answered the phone and a gentleman said he was calling from rear detachment office at Fort Bragg, and I asked if Doc had been wounded. Because when I went to bed at 1.30 that night, morning, you know, I had every TV and computer in the house on the news, Mm -hmm. and there had been an online report that the 82nd had had two paratroopers injured by a ricocheted bullet near a cement factory. And so I asked if he was one of the two that had been on the news. He said no. Alan was in stable condition, being medevaced to Germany, and would call us when he was able. It had been a gunshot wound to the abdomen. Mm-hmm. And so he said, stand by the phone for any further news. They would call us directly. And so I hung up and, you know, went and hugged my husband and daughter. And my husband took our daughter to school and I went into work. I was managing an accounting office in Austin. And so this was the height of tax season, you know, two oh weeks my before. Oh, my gosh, right. Cried all the way to the office oh. and kept it together during the day and cried all the way home. And... We did this until Wednesday and still had not heard anything from Doc. So I dropped our daughter Christy off at practice on Wednesday morning. And, of course, by then everybody at school knew uh, because word had gotten around. And her coach came up and said, you know, what's going on? How is he doing? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't heard anything. And, of course, lost it. And it turned out that his assistant coach was the son of our congressman, Congressman John Carter. It was his first year. He'd just gotten elected, had just been sworn in in January. Mm -hmm. And we found out later, he went to Johnny Carter and said, hey, here's what's going on with the Babins. They, you know, they don't know where he is. Can't your dad do something to help them? And that afternoon, Congressman Carter called my husband at work and me at work and said, you focus on each other, your jobs, and Christy, my D.C. office and Round Rock office are going to be working on this around the clock. And by Friday, we got a call letting us know that Doc was aboard the USNS Comfort, which is a Navy hospital ship Mm -hmm. that was anchored five miles off the coast of Kuwait. And they gave us a phone number. Hmm. That Of course, we started calling and nothing but busy signals. We couldn't get through. And that Saturday morning, which was Christy's 16th birthday, and of course by then she had asked us to cancel dinners and everything that we had planned for that day. Mm -hmm. As she was in the shower, Al tried to call the ship one more time and he got through. And spoke to, you know, a captain who of course wouldn't give him any information. And Al said, you know, I know he's on board, here's who I am. And... You know, they said, we don't know you from a reporter, but can you give us all your contact information? We'll call the Pentagon, and, you know, within an hour, they're calling us and putting us in touch with his surgeon aboard the ship, and that was the first that we found out how catastrophically wounded Doc was. Wow. You know, at this point, we're thinking, okay, no news is good news, because he's probably, it's a through-and-through gunshot wound, and that was during the week when we'd had the hostages, and then they'd been released, the five of them that made it to Lonsdale. Right, right. So I could keep track of the numbers of people that were arriving at Landstuhl. And remember, we were stationed in Germany. Right. I had friends that I called that retired there saying, 
find out if he's on the manifest. And they're just, we couldn't find Doc. So we found out that he, I mean, he was in really, really bad shape. He ended up being on the ship for three weeks because he was so unstable. He had over 22 surgeries, had blood transfusions, was on a ventilator, so he couldn't talk to us. Mm. There were two nurses that we found through friends of friends, again, you know, in the community that would hold up their phone time. So mm-hmm. Alan hear our voices, mm-hmm. but... Um, you know, he couldn't talk to us, but they allowed us to write letters and email them to the ship and they would read them to him. So we would write him and all our friends would write him and send pictures. Mm. And we were doing everything we could to say, we're on our way and hang in there and just to keep him alive. Mm -hmm. And Hmm. finally, towards the end of April, he stabilized a little bit and the sandstorms died down mm-hmm. in Kuwait. Mm-hmm. So there was a window where they could fly him out. So they took him by, you know, medevac helicopter from the ship to Kuwait, put him on a C-130 and flew him to Germany. And we got a call from the surgeon in Germany saying, don't come. Don't come. He's a very, very, very ill young man, and we're working around the clock to stabilize him, to get him back to you stateside. So, don't come because he's not going to make it, or you don't want to see this. That's so scary to hear that. No, you don't want to cross in midair. We're not going to keep him long. And the two days it's there. I mean, they were literally cutting and pasting in his stomach because the bullet did its job. It, you know, just created so many points of entry and exit that they just couldn't keep up. They'd right. close them and then they'd find another leak somewhere. And so, oh my gosh. yeah, a lot of sepsis. Uh-huh. And so they did, they stabilized him and uh, flew him towards DC. And before they could make arrangements for us, we had a friend whose sister worked for American Airlines that <laughs> said, when do you want to go? And I said, I want to go now. Right. And within, you know, this was at 10 o'clock at night. And by six o'clock the next morning, they had us on a flight, my husband and I, to D.C., not knowing when we landed whether he was going to be at Walter Reed or Bethesda mm-hmm. because of his surgeon tell us. And so we landed and landed to a message from Christy saying, you know, the hospital people are trying to get in touch with you and they said call him before you leave and we literally arrived at Walter Reed with Alan in surgery he had arrived you know in the middle of the night that night and we're blessed with an amazing surgeon who said what do you want to know and I said tell me what's going on from head to toe mm-hmm. and she did and it was a hundred times worse than we could have anticipated oh, I mean boy. his he just had so much damage Alan lost 90% of his stomach and his spleen and part of his pancreas for diaphragmatic damage and, you know, it grazed his liver. He had burns from the epinephrine that had been used, you know, in all areas to pump his heart back to life. I mean, he, you know, he presented like a burn patient, like a gunshot patient. I read that he laid on the hood of a gun truck for three hours before he was evacuated. Was that right? Three and a half hours. Yes. The gunfire was so severe. This was the worst gunfight the 82nd had been in 30 years. Mm -hmm. And it was so severe that they couldn't bring a helicopter in to extract him. So what they did was this group of gun trucks formed like a circle wagon, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. he's on the hood of the gun truck and they're slowly backing away from the firefight as much as they can so they can try to extract him to get him medevaced. And a medevac crew heard the traffic and felt like they were in the area and close enough and activated and went and extracted Alan from the battlefield. And the wow. medic that extracted him from the battlefield is on our board. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to help our wounded in a moment. So how long was yep. he in the hospital? At Walter so Reed. Alan ended up being at Walter Reed Surgical ICU for seven months. So he arrived there, and three weeks after he arrived at Walter Reed, so six weeks after surviving the battlefield, Doc contracted meningitis and suffered a stroke. So in addition to the already complicated medical journey, now he ended up being semi-comatose for almost two and a half years. Oh, my goodness. So we were there for seven months, mm-hmm. and once they were able to close his abdomen from 
all the damage, and he still was living with like six inches of intestine outside of his body and had four brain surgeries at Walter Reed. We finally were uh, transferred to Baruch Army Medical Center in San Antonio, which was at least, you know, only two hours from home. Mm-hmm. And he was there for about four weeks when the Army announced that they needed to send him to a nursing home before he would be ready for rehab. And I refused to allow them to transfer him to a nursing home and started looking for rehab facilities myself and, you know, was blessed to find one that would accept him because he had so many complications. Yeah. But there was uh, one in South Austin, and on Christmas Eve 2003, he and I came by ambulance to the center, and he was inpatient there for 14 months receiving rehab. And I was at least able to sleep at home. I, you know, commuted and Mm -hmm. helped and directed his care every day. Mm -hmm. But from there, then, as we started working on discharge planning, we went to San Antonio VA to their spinal cord injury center, where even though Alan doesn't have a spinal cord injury, he presents a lot like a paralyzed patient. Mm -hmm. So we were there for about six weeks, learned a ton. I mean, we learned how to manage a bowel program and, you know, bladder management and Mm -hmm. transfers and so many of those things that they just don't prepare you outside of a spinal cord center. Mm -hmm. And we were finally able to bring him home in May of 2005, the same month Christy graduated from high school. So he was home for the summer, you know, uh, went with us to settle her in at Texas A&M University. Uh He went with you? He went with us. us, What was his mood? How was his emotional state? So Alan has never lost his joy and appreciation for life. He uh, he inspires me daily with his attitude and does not regret Mm -hmm. what has happened. He'll be the first to tell you that he knew what the risks were and he was doing his job. Just mm-hmm. doing his job. You know, mm-hmm. the young man is a Purple Heart recipient and earned a Bronze mm-hmm. Star with Valor and mm-hmm. fully feels like he was just doing his job. Um, and so all this time, Alan's living with his intestine out of his body that I managed to create a system of using ostomy bags, you know, colostomy bags uh-huh. to keep it pristine. Uh-huh. And so in October of 2005, the same surgeon that worked on him when he came to Walter Reed agreed to do his reconstructive surgery. So we took him back to Walter Reed, and they did, and it was a success. So then we started, you know, we came back to San Antonio for a month of post-op rehab, Mm -hmm. and then he's been home, lives with us, and... You set up shop for him in the den, for what I understand. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. We brought Alan home really to an ICU because for that first year, he was still on oxygen. He, with his intestine out of his body, he couldn't eat solids. So, you know, with two feeding pumps and a lot of wound care. And, I mean, it was pretty much more than a full-time job of caring for him. Right, that was my um, next question. Was there ever any question that you would be the one to leave your job? No. You were all in. You were a paralegal, right? A paralegal, and, you know, I'd worked in a firm that actually did medical malpractice. And so some of the, you know, the medical stuff just kind of came naturally. The researching. You know, I started researching options, medical options. The advocacy, all of that just, came natural to me mm-hmm. and my husband's salary and benefits and all of that were much better and different mm-hmm. than what I had. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. All, you know, our insurance, our health insurance was with his job. Mm-hmm. And it, like I said, I feel like I had been in training and was led to do this. It just was a very organic transition. And I, even at Walter Reed, especially once the meningitis happened, because that was as a result of an improperly placed central line. Mm. So then I was at every round, at every treatment, and and became his walking medical chart. Right, and, you right. Know, like so many caregivers and, and advocates. It, like many caregivers. You yeah. become their walking medical chart and best team leader mm-hmm. because no matter how many services, doctors, rehab they have, you're there for everything. 
Oh, and he was, of course, so lucky to have you. You were his mom, too, so obviously, you know. You oh, exactly. Mama Bear, of course, kicked in, <laughs> but I took all my professional skills and put them to work for Alan. How was your health affected by your caregiving duties? I read that you went on a retreat, finally. Your husband convinced you through the, through the <laughs> you Wounded know, Warrior Project. Tell us about that. Yes, yes. And, you know, some of the health problems actually started within those first few weeks because, remember, we got the notification couldn't find him for a week, and then couldn't get to him for three weeks while he was on the comfort because it was in a war zone. And so we used to get phone calls at 1.30 in the morning from his surgeons telling us how bad things were, sometimes to tell us that he wasn't sure Alan was going to make it through the night. And I, within that first week, started not sleeping, not eating. Mm -hmm. You know, my blood pressure was through the roof. And mm-hmm. so after 10 days of that, you know, I'd sleep for two or three hours and get up to check the internet and see you know, if there was there were any emails from yeah. the ship. And so my husband said that if I didn't go see our family physician, he was going to call him and ask him to make a house call. He said, you need sleep and you need your blood pressure needs to get under control. Yeah. And so sure enough, I went to see him and like a good doctor gave me sleeping pills and mm-hmm. got my blood pressure under control and gave me antidepressants. Mm-hmm. And so we addressed the symptoms. Uh, we all knew the causes mm-hmm. and it was situational. And so this was going to be temporary because we would have Alan home in three or four weeks. And then I was at Walter Reed for seven months. And so, you know, for a few months, I could get my prescriptions filled because I had a prescription for them. And so my daughter or husband would pick them up and they would FedEx things to me mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and the mail and mm-hmm. those kind of things. And then by the time it came time to see the doctor again, I didn't have time because I was with Alan. Right. So, you know, kind of did that for half a year. And then once we were finally home and he was at Texas Near Rehab Center, I made an appointment with my OBGYN because another thing about caregivers that isn't spoken about is the stress that it puts on your reproductive system. Hmm. And I realized when I went to the doctor and, you know, they asked you when you had your last menstrual cycle and I couldn't remember. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I ended up with early onset stress-induced menopause. So one good thing came out of this. I went through menopause (laughs) at 43 (laughs) and didn't even realize I had gone through it. But he was the first one that said, Mrs. Babin, you need to get grief counseling. And I thought, grief? What are you talking about, grief? My son's alive. Why would I be grieving? Mm -hmm. We're celebrating. And you need to get into an exercise program. And I thought, great, at 3 o'clock in the morning? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you need to take care of yourself because if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to help Doc. And that was the first kind of heads up I had. And so, you know, went to my doctor and uh, we got on medication. And in 2008, Doc received a newsletter from the Wounded Warrior Project, and he was not yet a member. So I think it just went out to, you know, military from certain areas. Mm -hmm. And I saw on the back of that glossy magazine a picture of wife caregivers at a retreat in Florida. And I thought, why aren't they doing that for moms? And Mm -hmm. so I got in touch with them and said, you know, I'll find the funds. Because by now I've been meeting, you know, moms and sisters and wives and all types of caregivers. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, through communication, you know, then we got word that they were putting one together. And I said, I can't go. I can't leave Alan. Mm-hmm. And my husband insisted, and he said, you know, he'd take time off. And, you know, we put a team together because he just was, he was high need for a very sure. long time. Oh, sure. And, and I did, and, you know, one of the things I remembered the most was that I couldn't remember when I had slept through the night for three nights in a row. And mm-hmm. that what the retreat did and they had fun things we played bunco but then we also had some sessions on Mm self-care and stretching and yoga and journaling which you know i had always done and was writing enough to stay in touch and keep everybody abreast of how doc was doing Mm -hmm. but i stopped journaling for my sake so that you know the wonderful thing about it was that it just brought so many of those things to the forefront of my mind 
to begin focusing on me so that I could better serve him. And that was the beginning in 2008 of that awareness of Rosie, the person had gotten lost Mm -hmm. and had this identity of caregiver. And I mean, a lot of me, you know, the business person and the civic servant mm-hmm. and really the sister the mom the wife all of that had gone to the back burner mm-hmm. because I spent all my waking life mentally troubleshooting on how I could make this better for doc and what can we do better and how can we improve the quality of his life and what resources are out there you know what holistically what do we need to be doing and I mean it was just this constant noodling on how I could make the situation better and totally lost my identity mm-hmm. as a person and as a woman and you know human being mm-hmm. and I always worked hard at being a good wife and mother and Christian and aunt and sister and and that was dangerous. Yeah. How did your daughter, Christy, respond to seeing Doc like that and maybe not getting the attention that he got? This young lady is just one of the most amazing human beings you'll ever meet. So her, I mean, initially in that first week mm-hmm. when we mm-hmm. found out you know, how bad things were, I was sitting in the living room praying, and she came in and asked what was going to happen to her big brother. Now, they're seven years apart, so Doc was always very protective of her. And they were very, they had this, you know, mutual admiration society where they were very protective of each other. Uh It was okay for them to get on each other, but the minute one of us would get involved, it was like, leave her alone or leave him alone. Uh (laughs) So she said, you know, Mom, what's going to happen to Alan? And I said, you know what? He's going to be fine medically because the government's going to make sure that all of his medical needs are taken care of. I said, but beyond that, sweetie, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if we're going to have to go to Washington, D.C. or to Germany or to the hospital in San Antonio. But, you know, I don't know. We'll do whatever we have to do to make sure he's okay. And I said, and Christy, it may mean giving up this house and moving into an apartment. I don't know. And she said, I don't care what you have to do. I want you to take care of my big brother. I don't care where we live and what we do. That's so sweet. And the luxury that that permission to do whatever we had to do for him gave us was incredible. I mean, that's calculable. We left Walter Reed. I abandoned my home and my daughter Mm -hmm. because, Mm -hmm. you know, our focus was on getting him back and then keeping him alive. Yeah. And so we were blessed that, again, because she was in cross-country and softball, all of a sudden she had 20 softball moms uh-huh. that, you know, stepped up and yeah. then made sure she got picked up and to practice and home. And Wow, your community you know, really stepped up. The power of the Internet yeah. and email had just started then. And so right. I emailed all her teachers and mm-hmm. made them strictly aware of what was going on. And I would get, I, I have one that I keep in my day runner that was from a teacher that said, I ran into Christy in the hallway today and uh, did my best to comfort her. But by the time I walked away, I realized she was comforting me. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, this kid kept our home like I keep it and wouldn't let anybody touch her dad's yard because she knew how particular he was about it. And uh-huh. he's called, you know, the the lawn genius in our neighborhood and the guys would you know in patrol would drive by to make sure everything was okay and they finally pulled her dad aside when he was finally home and said hey you don't need to pay anybody to help with the lawn we can help you and he said we're not paying anybody christy's been keeping up with the lawn Uh and i mean she just stepped right up and i mean you know the things we're seeing with families in hospitals and kids acting out and mm-hmm. families falling apart mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know our family just grew stronger through it mm-hmm. and Christy grew up but we also made sure that the first time I actually got away overnight from the hospital in San Antonio when we were first there was to spend time with her you uh-huh. know Al senior came down as soon as he got off work for the weekend mm-hmm. and I came home so I could be in the house with Christy 
focused strictly on her and tried not to talk about hospitals and doc and, you know, and didn't tell anybody I was home. You know, I just made sure that it was just time focused on her and, and we still do that. I carve out time. Christy has run four Marine Corps marathons. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. yeah, that's a girl's trip. You know? And I heard and she followed your lead and she pursued a nursing degree. Is that right? She took some classes, okay. ended up, you know, that last year came home and there was just something about her and she said, um, I feel like I need to take time off. Mm-hmm. And before I could open my mouth and say, nope, you're going to stick to it because it'll be done before you know it. Her dad said, when do I need to come pick up all your stuff? And, bring <laughs> you home? and it mm-hmm. was the best thing he could have done. She mm-hmm. was home for two years mm-hmm. and actually became my backup caregiver and learned how to take care of Alan, do bowel programs, do everything with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, then she got a job in Austin working for a medical device consulting company. Imagine mm-hmm. that. <laughs> uh-huh. And course. works and lives in Austin and has uh-huh. actually just gotten a new assignment in her position and will be going to her first international conference in Germany in November. And, you know, it's talking wow. about going back to and actually doing something totally different, more in marketing and communications, which she's wonderful at. Good. And I think doing what is right for her and not what the rest of us thought she should be doing. Yeah, well, good for her. And I understand that you guys as a family are quite active. What sort of activities does the family do now? Well, we've continued with dancing, and Doc attends the VA, DAV, Winter Sports Clinic every year, and so he takes one or two ski trips a year. Uh Doc is a hand cyclist and a scuba diver, and so a lot of our activities, and, you know, because my husband still works and has, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. limited time off, Mm -hmm. what we have done is... A lot of these events, because we make sure that Doc stays engaged and motivated and active and it keeps him physically mm-hmm. committed yeah. to you know doing this, we take our family trips as a part of this. So this way, it changes our environment. Uh-huh. They're positive, active things to do. Mm-hmm. And so we have a pretty active social life and activities with Doc. My husband and I make sure we take at least one couple's respite trip together per year, mm-hmm. and then that we take one week strictly with Christy, and that's turned out to be Mardi Gras. We have a very dear friend who right. has a <laughs> home in New Orleans, right on St. Charles, and so when we told Doc that we wanted to do this, he looked at us and he said, Mardi Gras in a wheelchair? <laughs> I don't think so. I'll go to respite care. So he goes, he gets admitted to the Spinal Cord Injury Center where he's got a great team. Mm -hmm. And and that's what, you know, it takes to take care of Alan is people that know how to handle all of his daily needs. And they have the ability, you know, with ceiling lifts and stuff to transfer him in and out of his bed. And Mm -hmm. some of the young nurses, you know, and he stay in touch by Facebook throughout the year. So he doesn't mind. We, you know, as through the caregiver support program, I am allowed at least 30 days of respite care per year, but that's just a lot. You You're know, talking it, about the VA caregiver program, the right? The VA caregiver, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right. And, it, you know, for me, it's just every time I drive away and feel like I have to admit him so I can go have fun is that that moral injury, you know, <laughs> that, that takes me only about a day to get over. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's been good for him and good for us. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and... And also, as a part of the spinal cord injury, he has to be admitted for a three-day physical exam once a year because it's easier on them and the staff. You know, they're they're there full-time. They, you know, can do their urinalysis and then just put them in a gurney and take them throughout the hospital for all the services. So the fall is always a time when Senior and I get away because we tack on two or three days to that Mm -hmm. and take advantage of some respite care. Mm -hmm. Good for you. Well, let's talk about the founding of Help Our Wounded, this wonderful organization that you started. Tell us about it. Well, sure. You know, as as I said, by being at Alan's bedside, I mean, this started at Walter Reed. And 
I was there so long, I kind of became a volunteer employee. And mm-hmm. the nurses asked me, you know, when they needed help with families that were just, you know, that were struggling with the issues that they were, the medical issues. And then, you know, many of them arrived without a cent in their pocket. They'd managed to get there and then just yeah. didn't have the resources, didn't know who to ask, how to ask. And so, I informally started putting families together with services through the hospitals and nonprofit organizations and and making DOD aware of the needs that were out there. And every VIP, congressmen were in and out of the hospital all the time and making them aware of the needs that were out there because this was before any of the programs were in place. I mean, nothing like Wounded Warrior Project or the Yellow Ribbon Fund. At the time, the Fisher House, wasn't even available to the severely wounded because they'd been doing, you know, normal hospital cardiac and diabetes, you know, mm-hmm. cancer. And mm-hmm. so that took some time to get uh, people into those homes and p- people were paying out of pocket to stay. You know, we started paying $70 a night as we arrived at Walter Reed wow. for months, <laughs> in addition to all the bills at home. So we saw firsthand a lot of the challenges that were there and then how much worse it was once we got into the VA system because it takes so long to get people accepted and to get benefits. And those are the ones that are, you know, physically wounded and that have gone from the hospital and into the VA system versus those that serve for four years, get out, and then find out in the next, few months that mm-hmm. they have issues and they need to go apply for veterans benefits. Mm-hmm. And so we saw so many that just fell through the cracks and ended up in financial ruin. And so, again, I was informally, whenever I learned of these challenges, putting them together with organizations until 2009 and the uh, events at Fort Hood and we had the shooting Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. nobody was taking responsibility for that. So mm-hmm. because the FBI or DOD, you know, did not, did not approve of families coming in, they couldn't release funds until they determined whether it was workplace violence or terrorism, mm-hmm. nobody could fund. So I got a call from FBI social workers asking if I could help find any resources in Central Texas and, you know, kind of worked on it full time and got, I was faced with so many obstacles and so many no's from major, you know, uh, military nonprofits because this wasn't in their mission statement and they didn't do that kind of work. And they just, I mean, just so many roadblocks that, Eventually, I went into, you know, the civilian sector and churches Uh and uh hotels, and we got the families in that we needed to and got them covered and raised funds to make sure they were going to be okay. And I had a handful of friends that said, you know, you're doing all this work and banging your head against the wall. You know what the needs are. You know who the people are and where they are. You need to launch your own nonprofit where you have some decision-making authority because you know what's needed and we'll help. And that's how it started. And in the eight years that we've been doing this, we have helped over 800 individual families with emergency financial assistance to the tune of over $1.7 million. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, we help with everything from eviction prevention and foreclosures, and we put food in pantries and help with vehicle uh, repairs and also to help with travel expenses and lodging for things that aren't covered by DOD or the VA. You know, they go out Mm -hmm. into a specialty program. Sometimes the VA may cover the medical part of it, but they won't cover the travel and lodging or anything, you know, for for a family member. And we all know that the patient does better when they have a family member Oh, with sure. them. And in some sure. it's a caregiver advocating. Mm-hmm. And so we defray some of those costs and or help with child care. So, so do you raise uh, the funds or do you be- point people in the direction of where they can get funding? How does that work? Both. Both. Okay. Both. We, uh-huh. we both do fundraising and and again, a lot of what we do is emergency right now 
keep them from, you know, that spiral, that downward financial spiral from happening. And then we hand them off to those that do long-term care, whether it's, Mm -hmm. you know, case management or financial planning Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. I mean, so many times we identify needs that they don't even realize they have. Yeah, I'll bet. We don't do. But, Mm -hmm. you know, again, I've been on the receiving end of so many of these organizations that we're able to say, hey, can we share your information with so-and-so because we think they can help you. Mm-hmm. And so, again, still being that conduit for so many other resources and to maximize everybody's dollars because we all have different missions, but it's still for the same one mission, which is that veteran and their family. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an example of a family who recently benefited from Help Our Wounded? I will. And, you know, this happened just a couple of weeks ago. And the reason that it kind of stuck with me is because the majority of those that we help are enlisted and there's just not a lot of money to get paid as an enlisted person and even less once you get out into the VA system. But we had a captain and his family referred to us because they were moving from Minnesota to Texas to be close to the polytrauma center in San Antonio because that was where he had made the most progress Mm -hmm. with his health. He has a brain tumor. Mm -hmm. He'd been around the burn pits and worked very near the burn pit in Iraq. And Mm -hmm. so he's had seizures as a result of the tumor. In addition, suffered concussions. And so he's had a craniotomy. And they had their new home was ready. You know, they they could move into it. Mm -hmm. So their household belongings were moved by the military. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't get their furniture delivered. So they were having to live in a hotel, and of course, this isn't someone that could just sleep on the floor on a blow-up mattress. And so they were living in a hotel. They'd gone through all their savings. So these people had done all the right things, had gone through all their savings, and he needed to be focused on his recovery and not battling with a moving company as they're trying to find the best medical outcome. Uh And so we provided immediately funds for them to be housed at least a week at the hotel. And then, you know, they'll let us know if we need to extend that. And so that's not the typical. I mean, we have had some, I mean, just tragic cases. United Way of San Antonio uh, referred one family to us that they found over the holidays last year. They were uh, looking for shelter. They'd been living out of their car a veteran and his wife and three kids, and she had miscarried while he was inside a business interviewing for a job. So they could not find shelter for them, and Mm -hmm. the one place that they found that had space was a drug rehab transition home, but because they weren't rehabbing from drugs or alcohol, Mm -hmm. they didn't qualify to (laughs) stay in the home and I mean, they just, and this was the holiday. So trying to get in touch with, you know, anybody that could help. And so what we did was we put them in a, you know, week stay motel for two weeks to mm-hmm. get them through the, if I remember correctly, it was like the 23rd of December to get them through the holidays, to get this social worker, you know, some time to buy some time where he could do more. And so what we did was we got them sheltered and then with 24 hours through, Amazon Prime had diapers and wipes and baby food and diaper rash cream and juices and things delivered to them. Mm -hmm. And then some small grocery carts made sure that the place where they stayed had free breakfast Mm -hmm. and fruit and cookies available all the time during the day. And and then heard, you know, uh, weeks later from the same social worker that was calling with another family saying that they had... You know, they had found some long-term shelter for them and actually some uh, interviews for this young man for work. Wow, that's great. It's just heartbreaking to know that they've served our nation and are in these situations, and they're proud. They don't want to have to ask for help, and it becomes a challenge because so many times by the time they reach out, we're, you know, they have disconnect notices, and so which is like I said, you know, we make their emergencies our emergencies because mm-hmm. sometimes they don't have time for a two-week review and approval 
because then you can't, they just can't get back on their feet. Yeah. Rosie, as someone who's been through so much, uh, your entire family with your son and your military experience and caregiving, what sort of changes do you think are still needed at the VA? What could the VA be doing better in terms of serving military families and their caregivers in particular? The first thing that has to be done, and I've shared this with the secretary, is that it has to stop being an adversarial relationship. We don't want to be doing this. You know, this isn't by choice. <laughs> right, right. I would rather... And let's clarify for the listeners that when, <laughs> when you say secretary, you mean... Secretary of the VA. Secretary of the VA, okay. You're probably on speed dial with so many people in Congress. <laughs> you know, my my request has always been at roundtables and things like that mm-hmm. with VA directors mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. secretaries of the VA mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, it has to be an attitude of gratitude. By the time... A veteran has a VA card, they have proved that they deserve the medical benefits of the Veterans Administration. Mm-hmm. And so why they have to prove that at every check-in visit, it just breaks my heart because I sit in those lobbies and, and see the attitude. And it has, you know, that comes from the top, and that's any business. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes forget to run this as a business. Sometimes I feel like, you know, the administration has been there for the sake of the employees mm-hmm. and their rights mm-hmm. and not for the sake of the veterans. Yeah. And, you know, that that's heartbreaking. Uh, the other thing that concerns me is, you know, I worked really hard to build a team around Doc so that I got to a point where I felt comfortable leaving him as an inpatient so mm-hmm. that I could get some rest care. Mm-hmm. I'm one of a very small handful of people that will do that. And that's if they're severely injured enough that they need that level of care. For those that have ambulatory family members, I don't know any programs within the VA where you can admit them for rest care. And sometimes, yeah, I think those are harder. The ones that have yeah. brain injuries and severe PTSD that need that supervision right. to keep safe and healthy. You know, physical physical work, I think, sometimes is easier than the emotional yeah. work. Where's well, it's and, an invisible uh, illness, an invisible disability, really. You know, always waiting for that other shoe to drop, yeah. and you never know when that's going to happen. And, you know, Alan's care, although requires a lot of hands-on, you know, kind of in the evening, getting him ready for bed, and like I said, personal care programs and all of that, and then in the morning to get him up, we kind of have a rhythm and a schedule, but it's not this, is he going to hurt himself? Right. I mean, those things are just, and the, the programs just aren't out there. Yeah. Has Doc plateaued in his recovery at this point? No, he has not. That's amazing. 14 years later, I had a meeting yesterday, and one of the people there, his name came up and how he was doing mm-hmm. and said, Oh my gosh, I cannot believe the last time we were all together and talking to him, how improved his speech is over the last year. And since, you know, she had met him about four or five years ago, Mm -hmm. I mean, he can, he'd rather text than talk on a phone because he feels like he has a speech impediment, Mm -hmm. but he can order his own food and, you know, servers understand him. Mm -hmm. He's interviewed on TV. They don't use subtitles anymore. Mm -hmm. Yep. He, I mean, his fine motor skills have improved. He has started doing his own laundry in the last six months. He takes him all day. Do a load or two, but he's doing it on his own. Uh And And how old is he now? Alan is now, well, at the end of this month, he'll be 37. His uh-huh. birthday's on the, on the 29th. Okay. And do you anticipate him living with you for the rest of his life? Yes. Doc will always need to live with somebody okay. for the rest of his life because of the stroke and meningitis. Mm-hmm. He had a pump placed in his brain that drains spinal fluid into, mm-hmm. and in his case, into his heart because he was too septic for it to be placed into his abdomen like it usually is. Mm -hmm. And so he still has extra fluid in his brain. He has persistent hydrocephalus. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you always kind of have to do a neuro check. We as a family know to make sure his eyes aren't deviating Mm -hmm. or if speech tends to get a little slurred to keep an eye on him to make sure that he's just tired and not that there's something going on in his brain or in the shunt. Right, right. 
And so there, I mean, he cannot transfer. We use a ceiling lift to mm-hmm. transfer him in and out of bed, and he can't use that independently because he has no trunk control. Okay. So he can't sit, like, at the side of the bed without falling over. Mm-hmm. And he can't, like, he can't use a stove. He can use a microwave to get things warm but not hot because he has exaggerated startle reflex. Mm-hmm. So he can easily spill. The doctor said he'd have to be spoon-fed for the rest of his life, and he has managed to, you know, he can use a fork and a Mm. spoon, not a knife. Uh Uh, He can get that fork to his mouth on his own, and, you know, once in a while we have to help if it's a little challenging dish or something, but he can make his own sandwich. It might take him, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, but... He wouldn't starve. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Sounds like he's defied medical expectations in many ways. He has. He has and continues to do so. I love taking him back to Walter Reed, knock on wood. Hope uh-huh. you don't have too soon. And to throw him in to doctors, it said, I mean, the neurosurgeons pretty much judged us for not pulling the plug. Hmm. Had, Alan hmm. lives larger than most people I know and does more activities in a year. You know, he'll ski and scuba dive and hand cycle and para golf in a year more than some people do. Wow, that is amazing. How do you think this experience has changed you? It, um, it has made me a stronger advocate, not just for my family, but for others. It has made me appreciate my husband, who I just, adored before all of this happened as a person and as a partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, next to Jesus Christ, has been our rock, mm. has, you know, uh, supported everything. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you, you mentioned it, that you know, with getting away for respite care. I mean, we get emails every week on events going on and respite care and mm-hmm. caregiver receipts and all of this and mm-hmm. and there's times when he'll say you know we'll work it out you just you need to go and i'll say no i've got too much to do and there's you know i want to <laughs> say nope you need to unplug for two days and <laughs> he sounds awesome amazing girlfriends i mean it just that will read between the lines and say hey come on over and bring your pajamas you know mm-hmm. and and I think it's why I do what I do for others, because I know that if I could provide one nth of the degree that our son and that we've had in terms of support mm-hmm. for others, it's more than they have. Because some of these young men and women have no support system yeah, and don't know where to start. And some of them leave their entire support system be, to be near a medical facility that can provide the best care. Right. You know, that, that's expensive. Oh, yeah. And, but, you know, I always feel privileged when I get to meet a family early in their journey and they're in the, you know, our life's not like it used to be and things are so different. And I can look them in the eye and say, your life will never be the same again, but it can still be a great life. Yeah. You know, it's what you make of it and how you choose to handle it. And, you know, let's help you find the tools because the tools are out there you just have to seek it out, and you have to let people know what you need because of this. One thing I've learned through this is that Americans will step up when they know there's a need. Rosie, where can listeners find more information about Help Our Wounded? Go to www.helpourwounded.org, and they can get all sorts of information there. Okay. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we close? I do. You know, I, I want to thank you for doing this and for what you do for the voice of the caregiver and for creating awareness of the needs because, boy, you know, I think so many times we think of caregivers as the older generation taking care of spouses as they age, but we have a whole new generation of caregivers that are going to be providing care for three, four, five decades and that are doing it sometimes without their spouse's income, they've lost their income, and, you know, within the VA system, sometimes without insurance. Mm -hmm. And that awareness needs to be created. You know, when the wars aren't on the news, we also don't think about what's happening for the families of the combat wounded and Mm -hmm. awareness 
so thank you. Thank you for what you do. Rosie Babin, she is the founder and president of Help Our Wounded, which serves the physical, spiritual, and emotional needs of wounded warriors and those who care for them. We'll have a link on the AgeWise website to Help Our Wounded, so please be sure to check that out. Rosie, thank you so much for your time, and I'm so grateful for your service, for that of your son's service, for your husband's service, but in particular for Doc's service, retired Army Corporal Alan Doc Babin. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. And that does it for this week's show. Thanks for joining us. We're taking a short summer break and we'll return after Labor Day with a bunch of brand new episodes. All 110 of our episodes are available at agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z or Z, as my Canadian mother says. The Agewise podcast is produced and mixed by me and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. <laughs>